1799, July, August, September. Three months in which the Allies' pivot north to Switzerland fails, thanks to a fight back from Massena. And Massena just drew up his artillery and skirmishes and just knocked holes in the Russians for the entire day. The British team up with the Russians in a bid to stir up Holland. This massive Allied force is pretty much back where it started, almost exactly in some instances, so they've achieved nothing. And in Egypt, Napoleon Bonaparte wins another victory for the French against the Ottomans before sneaking off in the night on a fast ship back to France. Okay, I've left, so you're the new commander and good luck, cheerio. I'm Alexander Stevenson and this is episode 31 of the Napoleonic Quarterly, covering three months of desperate fighting and desperate measures. The Napoleonic Quarterly takes the epic conflicts of the 1792 to 1815 period three months at a time. And for this episode, we'll hear from David Hollins on how things soured for Suvorov and the Russians in the Alps, Charles McKay on French forces' latest victory against the Ottomans in Egypt and what Bonaparte did next, and Phil Ball on another farcical British landing in Holland. Uh, If anything you hear in this episode prompts any questions or comments to form in your mind then please do send us an email it's napoleonicquarterly at gmail.com we're on twitter which is definitely still called twitter and not anything else at napoleonic underscore q and on facebook we've got a facebook page too and not to mention patreon.com forward slash napoleonicquarterly a big big enormous fulsome Thank you to our new line of battle captains, John Warmoth, Luke Eggleston, Rob Griffith. Thank you all. And um, a few more patrons uh, to be mentioned at the end of the episode as well. Well, joining me now, as usual, are Professor Emeritus Charles Esdale of the University of Liverpool and Professor Alexander Mikabaridze from Louisiana State University, Shreveport. Charles, I hear you've been dicing with death once again. Yes, it, it was, um, It was, as somebody said, it was a shelf and safety issue. <laughs> or, or even a bookcase. It's a very professorial way to nearly die, I must say. A, a bookcase nearly falling on you. <laughs> Memo to self. When you purchase an 18th century cottage, do remember that the floors and the walls are not necessarily even and check that high bookcases are actually wedged upright um <laughs> failure to to um observe these elementary safety rules um is likely to produce drastic consequences 
Well, we're very relieved that you're alive <laughs> and well and not stuck uh, under a pile of books, literally, as well as, I guess, figuratively, which is the standard professorial situation. <laughs> okay, and um, Alex, you're back uh, in uh, uh, the United States in your home once more. Absolutely. Finally, after weeks of uh, travel and research, I've uh, landed back on the shores of Louisiana. And uh, I'm, uh, I can't say I'm enjoying the summer heat, which is atrocious here, but um, it, 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 it is uh, good to change kind of the pace and, and relax a bit. I have about three weeks left before the start of a new semester. So time to maybe do some uh, uh, readings just for fun <laughs> because I have a busy writing and research schedule in, in the fall. And of course, you've, you've been very busy at the moment because you've got a little one in the house that you're looking after, Alex. Is that right? Yeah, thank you, Alex. Uh, you might actually hear her in, in the background, but my wife and I, we are fostering children and we have a, a, an addition to our family, a, a lovely one-year-old uh, baby girl. Uh, full of life, energy, and, and, and demands. So don't be surprised if, if you suddenly hear uh, her uh, crying or, or, or giggling in the background. A guest appearance from her would be very welcome indeed. Let's turn now to the headline developments then. Now, these are a solid five minutes and 46 seconds. And I mention this because if you wanted to pop over to the Facebook page, you can watch Bernie Campbell's excellent visualisation of these various military movements. He's, he's made a video for us of Josh's summary, which is tremendous. So if you did want to skip ahead by six minutes or so and watch it, that's up to you. But now, though, ladies and gentlemen, let's dive in with what you've all been waiting for. Over to you, Josh. Yes, it's time for the Napoleonic Quarterly Headlines for the third quarter of 1799. Between the 15th and 25th of July, much manoeuvre and fighting occurs at Abukir, where 18,000 men under Mustafa Pasha had entrenched. Bonaparte consolidated 8,000 troops and attacked the position, losing over 1,000 men, but utterly destroying the Ottomans with only a fraction escaping to the citadel, which surrendered on 2nd August. However, the adventure now comes to an end as on the 22nd of August, Bonaparte relinquishes command to Clébert. He takes Berthier, Murat, and Lannes, with a bodyguard of 200 men, which include Marmont and Berthier, and leave Egypt for France, knowing he cannot sustain himself in the East, and having heard of the political chaos in Paris. Also in August, Toussaint Louverture regains full control of the north and west of Saint-Domingue as he seeks to reassert his power in the War of the Knives, an insurrection emanating from the south. August is a good month for Toussaint as he also persuades President John Adams to blockade the ports controlled by André Rigaud, his adversary with the United States Navy. In France, the Croissier de Bouy ends with Admiral Bouy's fleet returning to Brest on the 13th of August, having at length linked up with the Spanish fleet, Spain and the Republic being allies since the Treaty of San Ildefonso in 1796, and leading Lord Keith a merry dance around the Mediterranean, but achieving little more than being a large-scale distraction to the Royal Navy. In Paris, Director of France Emmanuel Joseph Sies 
plans to form a new government and throw out the constitution of the year three. He closes down the Jacobin Club and appoints Joseph Fouché as Minister of Police and Lefebvre as Commander of the Army of the Interior. To the Swiss and Italian fronts now, heavy fighting occurs between Messina and the Archduke Charles around Zurich as the French return to the attack. Thousands are killed between the 5th and the 26th of August without a clear result, apart from the loss to the Austrians of the St. Gotthard and Fulker passes. The expectation was of more heavy fighting to come. Politically and militarily, the French face disaster in Italy when, on the 15th of August, Joubert is killed at the Battle of Novi, and his army is broken by Suvorov, with terrible casualties prompting a general Russian offensive which threw the French back against the Apennines. Joubert was a major contender for a leadership position in the CIA's potential new government, and as such was a major rival to Napoleon. In the Northern Theatre on the 27th of August, the Duke of York's Anglo-Russian expedition landed to the south of the Texel with an initial 12,000 men. In a few days, they clashed with General Brune's Franco-Batavian forces, but this is early days for the expedition. September brings about a major rethinking in Allied strategy. Now worried about French pressure against the Rhine and wishing to aid the Duke of York, Archduke Charles is ordered to take a contingent through Germany to the Netherlands to unite with the Anglo-Russians. The void will be filled by Suvorov, who is ordered by the Tsar to march on Zurich and finish with Messina. This game of follow the leader leaves General Korsakov in command of a much reduced force in Switzerland and offers a brief window of opportunity for the French. Suvorov's absence will leave General Melas in command in Italy. French politics continued to swirl in chaotic spirals as the Directory breathed its last. General Jourdan attempted to declare a state of emergency in order to be given extraordinary powers, but his motion was defeated. Alarmed, however, at the response of the Jacobins, Sieyès removed the die-hard Republican General Bernadotte as Minister of War and began contemplating which of the generals he could use to complete his inner circle of statesmen and administrators, such as Fouché, Ducot, Talleyrand, and Barras. Returning to the Northern Theatre now on the 16th of September 1799, General Brune defeated York's Anglo-Russians at bergen op Zoom, highlighting divisions in the Anglo-Russian alliance and the poor organisation of the Allied force. In the Swiss Theatre, the decisive moment had arrived, and everything from the French securing vital Alpine passes to the insane changes of command came together to deliver one of the greatest Allied defeats of the war. Between the 25th and the 26th of September, Massena threw his now superior numbers and talent against Korsakov, who was beaten back across the river Limat, and then forced to retreat from Zurich with a loss of 8,000 men and 100 guns. Austrian forces under Hotz were defeated the same day by Sult on the Linth River. On the second day of the fighting, Suvorov reached the St. Gotthard Pass, but managed to batter his way through, suffering appalling casualties, only to discover that Korsakov was in retreat. This would compel Suvorov to make his legendary march across the Alps to reach safety. The disaster also meant that Archduke Charles had to turn back from his march on the Netherlands, and in the course of two days the entire Allied strategic vision had crumbled across Central and Northern Europe. As to Bonaparte, well, we'll just have to wait and see. Back to you, Alex. Okay, well, thank you very much to Josh. 
As always, for those excellent headline developments, that's all good stuff. And uh, now it's there's a, there's a decent amount on the list here. A lot bubbling up, a lot going on. This is a really interesting three months. But which of these events do our professorial panellists think is the most significant? What would they pick out? And I think this is an odd-numbered episode, uh, which I think, yes, it's episode 31, which means, Charles, you go first. Well, I th- I think that I would go. Um, I'd go for the Battle of, no- of, of Novi, actually, the, the 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 defeat of the main French army in 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 northern Italy. I know that's that's slightly counterintuitive. Um, I mean, you, you might expect you might have expected me to say, well, it must be Bonaparte sailing for France, um, but no. Um, the thing is that it was precisely the defeat of of uh, the French armies in Italy that opened the way for, for for Napoleon to take power. It created this massive military crisis, of which he's going to be the beneficiary. Um, the other thing I'd say, of course, this is a theme to which I re- I often return. Um, yet again, it shows that ancien regime armies were perfectly capable of beating French revolutionary ones. Um, you know, the the idea of inherent French military superiority based on what political developments in France um, is is something that you know can be challenged over and over again. So anyway, yes, the, the Battle of Novi. That's a really interesting one. Okay, and it makes sense. Uh, what about you, Alex? Well, that that's a very interesting um, period that uh, actually, in many respects, unlike uh, some other periods, we have so many to choose from. Um, my initial, uh, I think, inclination is, is to choose Napoleon's escape from Egypt and return to France, right? Uh, it starts in August, it will be done by October, so it will be kind of crossing over to the other uh, episode. But um, I do want to point out that there are, if, if you let me, Alex, um, I will go beyond the uh, the list of events that we have uh, mentioned in, in, in the introduction and choose maybe a couple, uh, couple others that are maybe in the long term, even more important than the ones that we've discussed. So we shouldn't uh, forget that it was in July of 1799 that French officer Pierre-Francois Bouchard was uh, digging on the outskirts of the uh, Egyptian town of Rashid, or Rosetta, and discovered the Rosetta Stone, which is, as we all know, key to uh, discovering the, the so much of the knowledge about the um, uh, ancient world uh, and, and the beginning of the Egyptology. So I, I think in, in some respects, part of me wants to choose that as as the uh, as, as the key event of this of this period, although it will not be realized. Uh, but uh, another part wants to move away from the um, euro kind of very eurocentric point of view here, and uh, also mention that in in this period we see the beginning, the summer of 1799. We see the beginning of the. Uh, infamous Russian-American uh, company, which would be uh, a Russian equivalent of the British East India Company, which is established in the summer of 1799 by uh, an imperial decree, and which will play such an uh, uh, important role in 
colonization of Alaska, uh, extension of the Russian power in North America. So the beginning is right here uh, in this episode. So I think uh, this is a way to say that a lot of interesting things are happening all at once. It definitely feels like that. Those are, those are two really interesting, different perspectives on on what's coming up. Neither of you went for the fighting in Switzerland and and, and that whole palaver, which is all, all all very well actually, because we'll be talking about it in a little bit more detail now. Uh, let's uh, unpick that and uh, for our first segment. And uh, to help with that, once again, we've got David Hollins back. David is the author of a number of Osprey books on the Austrian military in this period, and here he is now beginning. With with a description of the state of play at the start of this three months. Well, the Austrians have, uh, they've got control of, of Germany, but the French are massing uh, the remains of uh, Jordan's army uh, around Mannheim, which is about sort of halfway down the main bit of the Rhine there. And that's designed to draw the attention of Archduke Charles away from Zurich. Um, but Charles is at Zurich and holding the eastern part of Switzerland. Uh, Suvorov uh, has cleared Italy uh, except uh, uh, for Genoa. And then the, and there's a whole series of uh, citadels within various cities down as far as Ancona that are, are under siege by the Allies. So that's the situation there. And the, the most famous uh, citadel is uh, is Mantua, which of course Napoleon had spent eight months over uh, trying to take. And uh, it had been uh, uh, under blockade uh, since the beginning of May by Cry. But um, it's a, there, there was a, a little ruse this time, uh, to so it fell uh, at the end of July. And it's... Um, the thing about this is it releases Cry and about 10,000 uh, troops to reinforce Suvorov. And Suvorov has also called down Belgarde, who was in the Tyrol with about 45,000 troops. He's called them forward as well, although quite a few of them have finished up um, in, in these various sieges. But that's reinforced Suvorov's army, and he's just sitting there in the Po Valley. Meanwhile, in Paris... Uh, there's been a change in the directory, uh, which has now been joined by Abbe Sayers. And Sayers has, um, he's got this idea for a sort of a coup d'etat to uh, reform the directory. And uh, he's looking for a bit of military muscle and his his eye alights on uh, General Barthélemy Joubert, who'd been with Napoleon in Italy. And he'd also uh, taken over Piedmont in 1798. And so he sends Joubert off down to Genoa at the end of July to take command from uh, Moreau and MacDonald. And Joubert, Joubert gets a bit excited. Uh, he, there are some French troops under Championnet, which are the Army of the Alps. And um, the, he could get about 15,000, 20,000 reinforcements, but he doesn't wait for them. He goes charging over the Ligurian Alps to the north of Genoa. And he reaches Novi, which is on a like a little plateau just on the north side there, on uh, in the middle of August. And facing him are the Allies, and they're in a they're in a slightly strange kind of formation because as Joubert arrives, his right wing under Watrin 
uh, watching gets a bit um, gets a bit excited and he moves for he moves further north and so the allies think that the French are now trying to relieve the uh, siege of Tortona which is just off to the northeast and so um, the, the, the the allies are kind of drawn up on a strange kind of diagonal there's um, cry is on is to the west with about 27,000 troops the Russians are in the center but they're drawn back towards Tortona and then Melas with the other Austrian troops is sitting in front of Tortona and so on the 15th Cry launches uh, two assaults and it, the Allies have got about about 50 57,000 troops and poor, poor old Schubert's only got about 35,000 and he's only expecting to face a fairly small force under Suvorov so when Krai launches uh, his, uh, he launches two assaults up the slopes to the west of Novi through some difficult ground that's covered in vineyards. But Joubert goes down with some reinforcements to to the left wing and um, gets himself shot dead by uh, an Austrian patrol. This is um, crazy. Hang on. So uh, <laughs> this is this is ridiculous. So this has gone from French politicking in Paris, Sierre's plotting away. And then he had one job, which was to this this military muscle, which was to go to Genoa and uh, do something heroic there. But the problem with these impetuous military types is that they dive headlong in with no heed for their, uh, you know, the personal personal danger. And um, this is what happens when you do stupid things, unless you're Bonaparte, in which case you get away with it. But the, the odds are, given that this is real life, that some of these maniacs will actually die in the fighting. And this is what happens here. Oh yes, I mean he, he's uh, Joubert is is definitely he's he's like McDonald and Championnet and all the others. They've all been seeking a bit of personal glory, but uh, he's so he's now dead. And the ally, the the Russians launched their attack from the north uh, about uh, twelve o'clock, and they the Allies realise that the French aren't actually going to move up towards Tortona, so they bring Melas down. So you have sort of two Austrian pincers coming in from the the sides, and the Russians coming in from the north. And by five o'clock, they've uh, they've cleared the French uh, out of Novi, and they've gone uh, skedaddling back um, over over the mountains into Genoa. So back to square one, but with with no Joubert. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> minus the military muscle. But it creates opportunities for others, as they say. <laughs> Okay, so so so, uh, what, what about the fighting in the rest of this this three months? What else have we got to look at? Well, the the problem is uh, that the, the the Austrians are are concerned about taking Italy, and so um, Tugu has in, it has basically kept the 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 Allies uh, sitting there in in northern Italy doing not a lot. The the British, uh, who are um, also a bit anxious uh, about the Russians, have devised a plan, and they're the ones paying the bills. So it's their plan that goes through. And Lord Grenville, who was the British Foreign Minister, devised a plan in early June, whereby uh, you, you get this, these invasions, and the Russians uh, will join up in in Switzerland. So Suvorov is then going to be given orders to march north. And that's to get him, from the British point of view, away from a Russian presidents in places like Leghorn or Genoa, which the British absolutely would not want. 
Yeah, they're, they're not happy that the, the Russians are in the eastern Mediterranean. They'd be even less happy with the Russians with bases yes. uh, in, <laughs> in the western Mediterranean. And so on the, on the same day as the Battle of Novi, uh, Korsakov, with the other Russian contingent, although it was only about 25,000 men, has uh, reached Zurich. And Charles is then under orders to go north uh to uh, really to deal with the french forces that are massing at Mannheim and threatening to cross the rhine and also to support the uh, anglo-russian invasion of holland which we'll be hearing about but but could they realistically link up with what was going on all the way up there in the north um it again it's it is more of a political thing that um, the austrians are showing themselves in southern germany and they are um, because the, the job of the Holy Roman Emperor, who was, of course, the Austrian uh, monarch as well, was to protect uh, the, the Holy Roman Empire. And uh, they'd failed to do this initially in 1796, and there'd been a lot of mayhem all across southern Germany. And so Austria's influence was being reduced. And so this was a means of uh, showing their faces again. Yeah. But really, Fair yes. Enough. Uh, so Charles is is under orders to go, but he he knows what's going to happen if he goes, because Korsakov's only got twenty five thousand, and Charles can leave about ten thousand under Hotza. Um, and uh, but he has so he launches a um, a diversionary attack against uh, Massena uh, just after Korsakov arrives, just to keep Massena on his toes. But he has to go at the end of August. And he actually marches up to Mannheim. And by the time he gets up there, uh, the French have crossed. Uh, but Charles defeats them in, in a couple of battles, the main one being actually outside Mannheim and drives them back over the Rhine just to clear that out. Oh, yeah. God, God forbid that anything actually strategically significant would happen on the Rhine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, it's been a line of fracture since the time of Emperor Augustus, hasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so Charles has headed sort of headed to the north, um, and then it's time for Suvorov and the Russians to to head into Switzerland, as well at, at the sort of end of August ish. Um, and, but will will there be any fighting? Are we going to see any fighting in in Switzerland in September or or at the end of August? <laughs> let's 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 hear about that then. Um, and they well the the Austrian the Austrian staff forget to pay the mule train drivers. And oh, no. <laughs> Suvorov so, oh, no. is delayed by five days whilst they round these guys up again. But oh. um, <laughs> he marches into Switzerland and the, the French had uh, had anticipated this and they'd occupied the St. Gotthard Pass. And Suvorov has to go through the St. Gotthard and it, it's kind of a, a roundabout route to get to Zurich because there are quite a few lakes to the south of Zurich. And um, on the on the 24th, of uh, September, he uh, he he is he, he in three columns he assaults the St. Gotthard Pass and tips the French out of there, and then on the next day, the 25th, comes the the, the he reaches the Teufelsbrücke, which is a single span bridge over the River Royce. And um, there's a painting, a very famous painting, that shows the Russians trying to attack this bridge, which the French have broken. And they're under fire from the French, and it's all terribly heroic. And actually what happened was 
<laughs> the French had about a thousand men on each side of the of the of the gorge, and the Russians sent some troops up and evicted them from uh, the the western side of it. The French had they had some uh, some temporary bridging across, so they went they went back across the bridge uh, across their temporary bridge through the all the bits and pieces in the river along with their artillery and retreated and then the main column came up and it had uh, an austrian an austrian pioneer company and there were some russian craftsmen amongst the infantry and they built what's called a a, a laufbrucker or a flying bridge which is basically two long pieces of uh, pieces of wood and some trestle platforms and just marched over it <laughs> so that's actually what happened at Teufelsbrück. Wow! <laughs> but it's suddenly it's become this heroic <laughs> action by the Russians under fire from the French. Yes, that's not quite right, is it? Because actually, um, it was there was a pretty clear riposte. <laughs> okay, let's let's hear about Zurich then, and um, how, how that pans out. And of course, you described the terrain in in the last episode. So here we are again. <laughs> Um, yes, it, it's um, on the same day as Teufelsbrücker, um, Massena attacks uh, Korsakov uh, at, at uh, Zurich, and he attacks in four columns, and the northern one attacks the Zurich Berg, which is the mountain to the, the east of uh, Zurich. But uh, for reasons best known to himself, Korsakov doesn't put anybody on the Zurich Berg, and he puts all his troops in these large rectangular formations that the Russians used against the Turks. It's the same thing as Napoleon used in Egypt. And Massena just drew up his artillery and skirmishes and just knocked holes in the Russians for the entire day until the Russians got rather fed up with it and withdrew back into Zurich by, by about nine o'clock. But the key thing was uh, Salt, who's come down from Germany, uh, he's got about 15,000 men and he goes down to the bottom of Lake Zurich, which is about 40 kilometers to the southeast. And he attacks Hotzer and Hotzer also manages to get himself killed early on in the fighting. And uh, so they scatter the, Aust the Austrian forces quite quickly and start coming up the eastern side of the lake. So Korsakov is now in Zurich with he's going to get encircled so he's he, in trouble as well he's, he's in deep trouble and uh, so he pulls out overnight and makes a fighting withdrawal uh to winter tour uh and then into winter headquarters uh, winter quarters in germany and so Suvorov uh on the next day gets as far as glarus which is about 65 kilometers southeast of zurich so he nearly made it. <laughs> he gets he gets the news of what's happened, and he then turns east and makes his his famous withdrawal through the Alps uh, to winter quarters in Feltkirk, and this is where the recriminations really begin for the Allies, and of course for Massena is now the big hero. He's saved the Republic, and uh, the news gets to Corsica about a week later. <laughs> Thanks very much to David and those recriminations uh, beginning gulp. Um, we might just see trouble ahead for the coalition's unity, in fact, but, but we, we can look forward to that maybe at the end of the episode. For now, though, Charles Singh, as you, 
you'd picked out Novi as being the, the most important thing here. Was this because this was Ciez's potential sword falling on his sword, as it were, or, or getting in the way of somebody else's, perhaps, getting himself killed, at least, that, um, that that's why that's so significant? Well, I mean, obviously, politically, it was significant. Um, in, in it, it removed a very obvious rival, in a sense, to, to, to Napoleon. Um, Napoleon had already got lucky because uh, Lazar Roche, um, who was a, a, another potential... Um, Another potential sword, shall we say, he had died of illness in 1797. Um, and at this point, uh, nobody was talking about Napoleon in Paris, or at least, I mean, he certainly wasn't the front runner. Hubert was the front runner. He was the man on the scene. Um, I mean, nobody knew that, that, that Napoleon was suddenly going to reappear in the, in the way that he did. So, so Napoleon got very lucky when Joubert was killed. Um, in terms of the battle, I suppose the um, the interesting uh, discussion, I suppose, revolves around the very curious figure of of Suvorov. There are people who say that that Suvorov was the greatest general of the 18th century. There are people who say that Suvorov was the maddest general of the 18th century. And, and there are people who would agree with both statements. Um, he certainly appears um, from the accounts of, of people who met him and dealt with him. He certainly appears to be in a very, very eccentric figure, to put it mildly. Um, but OK, um, if Suvorov went around with, with, a, with a nightcap on his head, um, look at look at the attire of certain British Second World War generals. I mean, look at any photograph of of Horrocks or uh, Monty or whoever, and and they 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 appear in a, an extraordinary range of costumes. So so let's set aside his his, his choice of garb. Um, was he really a great general? I correct me if I'm wrong, um, American Alex. But the bulk of Suvorov's experience was was fighting the Turks um, and after that fighting the Poles. Both were capable of being very, very tough opponents. I don't and I don't think that anybody should gainsay Suvorov's achievements in the campaigns that he fought. Oh, yeah, um, I, I think you're right that the bulk of it was against the Ottomans and, and, and the Poles. He did have a, a brief uh, service spell in, uh, against the Prussians during the Seven Years' War, but that's more uh, the, the beginning of his career in, in, in many respects. Was he prepared? Was he really prepared um, for, you know, for campaigning against a, a, a very tough Western European opponent? Yet he was successful. Does that, does that mean that it was really Joubert who lost the battle rather than Suvorov who gained it? Um, I'm not quite certain, but there there are certainly very interesting questions um, surrounding Suvorov, um, both in a personal sense and the extent to which he's really typical of of Russian commanders. And and none of those questions I mean, do I feel really equipped to answer. And I'm sure that Alex uh, uh, 
American Alex would have far more to say on this than I do. Um, I, I think you, you're right, um, Charles, that Suvorov was uh, probably the most eccentric um, of, of the 18th century European generals. Um, his eccentricity oftentimes bordered, at least in the minds and perceptions of contemporaries, bordered on, on, on madness. But there is a there was a clear rationale to that uh, madness. So um, I'm, I'm uh, you know having grown uh, in in kind of in Soviet Union, Suvorov was lionized in in, in the educational system and, and portrayed as equal to Napoleon. And, and you know there was a, a lot of lamentations going that uh, if if only he had lived long enough, or if only the war had lasted long, so for the for the two of them to to have met. And that would be a, a, an interesting matchup, uh, but uh, I agree with you that there are um, some aspects of Suvorov's career that uh, leave uh, uh, much to be kind of uh, to discuss. Not the least his involvement in the destruction of Poland, his involvement in the massacres at at Praga, um, his his actions uh, elsewhere. Um, you know, for example, the the suppression of the uh, peasant uprising in in, in Russia. So, you know, we have to bear in mind that this, for all his... <laughs> <laughs> That's a sign from above. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> s- sorry, we have seagulls. I will, mo- I will mute. <laughs> uh, we, should, I- uh, we should leave this in. <laughs> it's a nice break. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> we've got a microphone live on the Bonaparte ship as he sails back in, in the final. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, actually, this was—I uh, uh, wanted to transition from Suvorov to kind of uh, piggyback of what Charles was saying that Joubert's death at uh, at Novi and, and the battle as such is is um, of such importance because for contemporaries, especially in France, the the Allied victory at Novi. Uh, Kind of point seemed uh, as if the last hope of saving France was was gone, and the day France would be like in 1792 on 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 on, on the eve of being invaded once more. And there's a interesting issue of a um, uh, of, a, of a French newspaper, uh, Lang, that in in late August. Um, of 1799 publishes an article in which it says it is the Bonaparte that we need desperately need, and uh, and I think that article was a reflection of a common aspiration. Um, now we can debate how common this common aspiration was, but it was certainly common in the uh, higher echelons of the French government that on September 10 the Directory uh, made uh, the decision to right to actually recall uh, Bonaparte, um, uh, which, as we know, uh, that the decision would be uh, conveyed in, in, in a form of an order that never reached Bonaparte, but which will allow him upon his return to kind of find that safe um, uh, or safely navigate the, the, the pitfalls of being accused of, of desertion and abandonment of a command. Well, I tell you why this three months is a little bit confusing actually because what 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 you're really bringing out here is that all those gains of 1796 those french gains in north italy have gone and that's suvorov and his um quirky genius plus the austrians uh, and, and the ancien regime approach doing doing pretty well there 
You've got that on the one hand, but on the other hand, in Switzerland and by the end of this quarter, Masena has come back, beaten Korsakov, retaken Zurich, uh, and and reestablished and and done a lot better. So it's it's a bit choppy, and um, there's no one clear sense of direction overall. It's almost as if both sides of this conflict have something uh, in this three months to be very um, grumpy and. Uh, jumpy about that that, that they, they can each start getting worked up in their own ways and maybe we should just briefly take a look at the allied side of things we've we have had this shift north Suvorov sent over the alps over st gotthard pass as david was describing uh, to try and um, help help with switzerland and then and then archduke charles being sent further north none of that really works out but um, but it's it's that seems fairly significant in its in its own right as well as that that strategic shift. Would you agree, uh, Alex, that this was really just because of British cash, basically, just trying to say no, we definitely don't want the Russians in the Western Mediterranean. Thank you very much. Um, no, I wish it was that simple. Um, but uh, no, it's it's partly about the desire to coordinate with the British for sh- certainly uh, because this is a time when. The Anglo-Russian invasion of of the Low Countries, um, right, is 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 pending, is, is forthcoming, and, and will indeed take place. So there's a desire to co- um, to coordinate the actions. Yes, uh, money play does play a role in it, but I think if you ask me, kind of, to choose one decisive kind of reasoning, I think I would go to the rising tensions between Russian and Austrian interest in in Italy, because one of the things that happens. Uh, right before Novi, but certainly in the wake of Novi, is the realization of the stark differences for the future of Italy that Russians have and the Austrians have in mind, right? Uh, Paul intervened into local Italian politics far more vigorously than Austrians expected, and his interventions was designed to restore what he believed was the legitimate uh, governments, so essentially the governments that the French overthrown or the Bonaparte overthrown uh, three years earlier. Um, and for Austrians, this was not the course of action they really wanted to, to pursue. There was a, a, a greater desire to consolidate their presence, to increase their control of the region. And that then reflects, uh, I think, uh, in, in the operational plan that they developed which on one hand is indeed designed to support the Allied forces, both in the Low Countries and in Switzerland, but uh, an operational plan that Suvorov personally finds absolutely rational. And there is the famous exchange when Suvorov hears about the decision to move Archduke Charles's army, um, and he famously uh, uh, shouts out, this owl, and he refers to Tugut, right, the, the uh, um, Austrian uh, statesman, this owl has either gone out of his mind or never had one. And he complains vociferously that this operational plan sabotages all the gains that Russians have made in the preceding months. So he is not keen on moving to Switzerland. He prefers, far more prefers to uh, invade southern France and use the the local environment. He, the, the Allies are well aware that the the south of France is more royalist or kind of less supportive of revolution than than other parts of France. And, and Suvorov is keen on, ex, on uh, actually uh, kind of flaming this entire revolutionary uh, movement in, in more conservative parts of France. And he pleads 
repeatedly pleads with the Austrians to postpone this operation if possible or revise it. But ultimately, uh, he's told that he needs to comply. And here um, in, in September, uh, I think September 4th, 1799, Suvorov uh, writes a long report to Emperor Paul in which he just lambasts Austrians. And if I can cite a, a quick kind of citation, he says that Austrians are deliberately trying to uh, waste away our great victories and achievements. They've, they write to me only dour letters full of either reprimands or requests to report all military actions in advance. And so here in this letter, we see these kernels of the possible rupture that we might see uh, later. We might, we might, who knows, Charles? Yeah, um, I hear I hear everything that um, American Alex says, and indeed, you know, had had you asked me, I would have said, well, you know, the most important factor is uh, Paul's increasing disillusion with the Austrians. Um, that's the push factor, if you like. Um, there's also a pull factor in in the, and again, you know, we've talked about this before. The Russian czars were invariably married to German princesses. They had they had German fathers-in-law, German cousins-in-law, ge- German grandparents-in-law, and um, the, the czars, you know, did tend to see themselves as protectors of, of, of the minor German states, which happened to be ruled by the, by their many connections. Um, so consequently, Paul, not Su- Suvorov, but Paul at least certainly did have a an eye for Germany. You know, he he felt that the, with with a Russian army in Germany, he could be protecting what he genuinely saw as Russian dynastic interests. I think one of the interesting. Um kind of elements or side stories of, of the aftermath of Novi is its impact on, on political life in France itself, because the revelation of the catastrophic, and, and I don't think it's an overstatement to refer to it as such, the disastrous de- um, defeat at, at Novi had a, a profound impact on the pol- politics in, inside France. It is right here in, in August and September of 1799, that we see, for example, uh, Jourdan, right, General Jourdan, um, a, a man um, n- known for his ardent and sincere Republican sentiments, uh, who was um, approached uh, by his Jacobin colleagues with the um, with an offer to um, essentially do what Bonaparte would do soon enough. Jourdan approached in turn Bernadotte and proposes in a remarkable exchange proposes to arrest members of the directory, including CS and Barra, and proclaim a Jacobin government. And, and this is where I think all of this hinges in many respects on, on the role of Bernadotte, who at this crucial moment uh, acts rather uh, hesitantly or irresolutely, and he decides to kind of um, share tidbits of this offer with some other members of the government, which means that on September 14, in, in this famous session on the 28th of Fructidor, Jourdan got up in the Council of 500 
and demanded that the council declare France in danger. And this is an echo of that La Patrie en danger that we've discussed earlier. And he wanted special commission to be formed to take measures for, guess what? Public safety. <laughs> oh, let's set up a committee. What a great idea. <laughs> so I think if Jordan's proposal had succeeded, I think uh, the constitution would have been suspended. France would have, in many respects, taken a step back. And it is this remarkable debate within uh, the councils that ultimately shuts it down. And the president uh, of the council was actually openly threatened with death if he pushed it a- any further. And by the way, the president was indeed uh, uh, the uh, Lucien Bonaparte, the very uh, capable right parliamentarian who uh, was able to shut down the motion. And for now, this this uh, kind of the, the emotions kind of come down. But it's a little bubble uh, bubbling up on the surface and popping. And you can just tell that the temperatures are rising. The pressures are increasing and temp- tempers are boiling over here and there. Is that why Bernadotte was removed as minister for war then? Was, was that to do with that? Well, uh, yes. And in, in Jordan was actually uh, thrown out by, by a vote of uh, something like 245 to 171. Uh, there were resignations uh, of other officers, and uh, there were Jacobins who were organizing demonstrations in, in the streets of Paris, including in the Place de la Concorde. So I think you see here those tensions bubbling, as you pointed out, and, and who knows where they will take us uh, <laughs> this fall. Well, and if the French politics uh, couldn't cope with anything more, they've also got to deal with the imposing threat of a British landing in the Netherlands in in this three months as well. Um, So let's see if that's going to uh, add further pressure or if we just need to get the uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm music out as uh, as we hear about how this goes for the British. Well, it's it's Phil Ball again. We've had Phil coming back now. He's, He's talked us through all sorts of operational amphibious calamities by the British throughout the 1790s. He's back once again now, though. And here's another first for the Napoleonic Courtly. Okay, brace yourselves, everyone. As you'll hear, I asked Phil to explain the motivation behind the British decision to move against the French in Holland and just talk us through through all of this. And guess what happened? He just talked non-stop without hesitation, repetition or deviation, more or less, for the entire 10 minutes or whatever it was. What you're about to hear is a magnificent monologue. Phil is so good at this, though. So sit back, relax and enjoy the blunderings of the British on yet another botched landing. The British government are very keen to get back into into a into uh, Holland has uh, been fairly central to their policy for yeah, most of the 18th century is to is to be allied with the Dutch. They like to be allied with the Dutch. They see them as similar people. And the loss of uh, of the Netherlands in uh, of Holland <laughs> in 1795 uh, is felt very strongly in, in in the British government, and they want to get back there. And they've been sold this idea that. Um, the Dutch uh, are ready to rise in uh, in support of, uh, of of the return of the the, the Prince of Orange, and this this will be very handy because, as usual, uh, Britain is uh, is thinking now oh, we'll just send a couple of troops, they'll land, there'll be this re- rebellion, then we can send them on somewhere else to do something more useful. And 
it's a, a good use for our, our Russian allies who, who have promised us, uh, you know, 20, 30,000 men, depending on the circumstances. Might be some Swedes involved if we're lucky. We can draw Prussia back into the war. Strategically, it's looking very, uh, very appetizing for the British government. Also, they, they're, they're hoping to help uh, the Austro-Russian forces in northern Italy and Switzerland by drawing forces away from that area to deal with this direct threat to uh, to, to France, basically, if we can land 30, 40, getting on for 50,000 men on in, in Holland, uh, then obviously that that's a, that's a threat to France itself. Uh, and, and, and indeed, it was seen as such when they when they finally landed. So. Pitt and Grenville are pretty much the uh, the prime architects of this plan. They they grab their their favourite general uh, Abercrombie and say, right, you're off to off to off to Holland. I think it's the 12th of August they set off. Uh, he's bobbing about in uh, 120 ships. It takes to uh, to load this uh, this first contingent of around 10,000 men. So he hasn't got the whole force that he's been promised uh he doesn't think he's got enough to do what he's being told to do and he's got this list of places that you might like to go they go to the helder which was not really on the list but the navy are very keen on going to the helder because uh at the helder and and uh, texel island are the remains of the dutch fleet the bit that wasn't thumped at camperdown is still hunkered down uh off the island of texel and British intelligence reports have uh, have led the uh, the government to believe that there is a threat to Ireland uh, from uh, the Dutch fleet and a possible uh, invasion force being raised in in Holland to attack Ireland. So obviously, knocking that out would be uh, very handy. The place that they've landed is the place where they like the oranges the least. It's the uh, it's the stronghold of the opposition and predictably pretty much nobody rises in uh, response to uh, the british landing uh which in itself is quite interesting it's uh, an assault landing they uh, uh, there aren't many of those in the in, in the period quite a large naval force absolutely smashes the hell out of the beach huge bombardment everybody all the all the british uh, accounts of this talk about a huge bombardment going overhead as as they as they go in and most of it is able to land pretty much unopposed although so there's a large batavian army behind the dunes i've i've been there and these dunes are huge you know it's it's <laughs> i say dunes it's pretty much the grampians in 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 sand form but, uh, so the dutch are behind there uh there are some casualties the british land uh there's a battle uh the dutch go during the night of the 27th of august which is the day they land uh the dutch uh the batavians abandon the town of helder and its naval stores and uh harbor and they disappear off and shortly after that the royal navy capture the dutch fleet at anchor now there's a lot of as usual uh, there's, there's a certain amount of shenanigans going on in that um the british uh, have been trying to get an inside man in the dutch navy and they've got three they have sort of sowed the seeds of discontent within the fleet the admiral mitchell is very very proud of himself how he's got his entire fleet undetected 
through this unmarked channel. It's an amazing bit of seamanship. He's lined his, he's got them bang to rights, and they surrender. And it's like, oh, oh, God, there goes my knighthood. No prize money, no knighthood. He's not best chuffed. That is the Dutch Navy out of the war, in essence. So very important from that perspective. And a lot of people think they should get on the boats and go home at that point, which is a fair point if you know what's happening next. But at that stage, obviously, haven't achieved any of the strategic objectives of this expedition. Uh, the Dutch haven't ri risen. The French are still there. Uh, the French haven't even sent that many troops to, to deal with the, uh, the threat. So it's not really done what, it, what it's supposed to do. They stay there and they dig in. He's only got 10,000 men. Clear, he's been told that the Dutch are going to rise. They haven't. He's been told that the Dutch army are going to come over in droves. That's not what they were told to expect. So he doesn't know what's in front of him. Um, apparently, the um, the defences of, of, of Amsterdam are completely open on that side. But no one's told him that. So he digs in. And uh, he... Uh, the French start to arrive in numbers and together with the Batavians, they try and push him out. But he's got a very strong position on the Zeip Canal. And, uh, you know, in spite of the usual French heroics, there's stories of, of grenadier officers with their sabres between their teeth diving into canals to try and get across and attack the British. Uh, but this position is basically a fortress. Uh, he's, it's, it's got canals and dikes all around it and he's dug in. And uh, he's basically couldn't winkle him out of there for, for all the tea in China. So Abercrombie stays there. He doesn't go any further, but they can't get rid of him. Either. A, bit of, a bit of a stalemate ensues. But very shortly after that, uh, our old pal, the Duke of York, turns up to save the day. He turns up with uh, the next contingent of, of, of British troops and the Russians also turn up. So they've got at this stage, I think around 30, over 30,000 men, 38,000, I think might be. So pretty big army for us for this period. And uh, York being York uh, decides he's, he's, that's it. We're not, we're not going to skulk behind our barricades anymore. We're off. Uh, we're going to uh, seek out the French and, and, and beat them. He comes up with a typically elaborate plan. Four converging columns set off. And um, everyone's supposed to be going at dawn which is a, a fairly amorphous time, of course. And there is some suggestion that there might have been a, a miscommunication based on the difference in time. Having read the accounts, it seems more likely that certain elements in the Russian army, having been on the boats for quite a long time, uh, quite liked the idea of um, that they, they peel off and do a bit of looting in the, uh, in the nearby villages and it escalates and they just commit more troops to this and they plow on along the dikes basically it's it's, it's a straight road they just thunder along and uh, there's actually a, a, an account from a, a british officer who's with them so <laughs> talking about this, this wild this wild assault so they go in with the bayonet they shove the french out they're shooting in all directions including at each other uh they're bringing up the artillery also some friendly fire going on there and they get to the to the village that's their objective they take it and they're like well where are the british well the british are all stood in lines waiting for you know <laughs> zero hour we're not there yet <laughs> hello <laughs> i can see firing what who's firing no, no one's supposed to be firing uh we're not supposed to have gone yet but uh, 
the Russians sat there waiting for the lose impetus and the French come around and um, outflank them and the Russians get pushed back. Then there's a bit of fight. You know, it, it, it's, it's a messy scramble. Uh, the British do all right on their side, but without the Russians punching through, uh, there's not really a great deal of point to it. And Abercrombie has been sent in a massive wide arc, supposed to cut the enemy off as they're retreating. As they don't do that, uh, he, his his uh, his slant is a bit a bit redundant as well. So he also falls back. So at the end of the day, this massive Allied force is pretty much back where it started, almost exactly in some instances. So they've achieved nothing, really. Um, bit of uh, bit of practice for the troops. <laughs> Basic thing to say about the Low Countries um, is is that Britain will always consider them to be central to her security. You know, um, the defence of the British Isles begins at, at Brussels or the Albert Canal or um, the Belgian frontier, whatever. Um, the, the British throughout the 18th century had striven to ensure that no one power controlled the whole of the of the Atlantic and, and indeed Channel coastline. Um, they, they couldn't do a whole lot about France being the, the enormous power that she was with the powerful navy that she had. But they could at least um, try to ensure that the Austrian Netherlands remained in the hands of Austria. And above all, that Holland remained um, a state which was essentially in Britain's pocket. Um, of course, all of this had fallen apart. Um, the old um, Orange monarchy, um, well, you can't really call it that, but the, the statudeship had, had fallen apart. Um, France, uh, France had taken over, Holland had become a satellite republic, and of course Britain's excluded, and still worse, um, the Dutch have gotten a, a very large fleet. So um, operations in Holland are always going to be of, of great interest to the British. And um, what's more, it's the sort of thing that they are set up for. Um, they can obviously operate close to the sea. They're not going to have long supply lines. Um, they can make use of their naval superiority. Um, so Holland matters to the British. And secondly, Holland is a place where they can get at the French. But is it going to make any difference? Not as far as I can see in, in the short term. Um, had the British been able to, ca to cap capture um, Antwerp um, and push, you know, push as far south as that, that could have been a real game changer. Um, but there was very little chance of them being able to do that. Um, what was really the point of them being there? I suppose, you know, I suppose the answer to that is, well, it was, it was political. The British were actually doing something. 
rather than not doing anything. Well, I tell you what, talking of politics, Charles, and, and here is something to, to, to push back at you, because you've often talked when the French walk in and um, are disappointed by the lack of Republican excitement that erupts in places like Rome, etc. Well, here the British uh, rock up in, in Holland and there is very little interest in um, this opportunity to step away from the Batavian Republic and embrace the oranges once again. So is this an example of general apathy in response to a, a military arrival just being, maybe that's just what happens. People just don't care that much. Yes. I mean, I, I think, I think it is very much a case of apathy. Um, the British didn't exactly um, win friends and influence people. Um, their troops pillaged, um, fairly badly behaved, um, they, didn't, they didn't turn in a very good performance. Um, you know, why should why should any sort of solid, sensible Dutch burger rally to the cause of a monarch whom they may well have felt dubious about in the first place, but who clearly hasn't got very much in the way of effective military support? With regard to Dutch public opinion in general, um, you're always going to have the same pattern. You're going to have a sort of 10% at one end who are fanatically pro-Batavian Republic. You could have 10% at the other end who are fanatically anti-Batavian Republic. And you've got the 80% in the middle who are merely trying to make their way and, and um, they make whatever compromises they need to make. Now, such people can't be relied upon to to come out in revolt against Batavian Republic. But at the same time, nor can they necessarily be relied upon to rush to the help of the French. And I think you'd find that um, if the Allies don't get very much help from the civilian population, neither do, neither do the French. That's fair enough. That's absolutely fair enough. Well, before we move on, I, I should just ask the question, at least to you, Alex, about the mood in Paris and whether th this uh, British-Russian um, attempt to stir up trouble in the Batavian Republic is actually going to um, stir the hornet's nest of Paris even more. Maybe they were already sufficiently stirred up before this kicked off. Yeah, I, th I think um, Novi is far more important in, in its impact on the French political uh, landscape than the events in, 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 in Holland. And Holland is a good example of, of a of, a, of an idea that seemed great on paper, but was implemented so poorly. Um, and if we, uh, I've looked on the Russian from the Russian side, and you see logistical challenges that they have been grappling with to conduct an expedition that would have taken Russian troops to the furthest point up to that moment, right up to the, to the furthest point uh, from the Russian borders uh, in, in the West. So that in its uh, that is uh, logistically quite a challenging enterprise. Uh, Paul agreed to provide um, under the treaty uh, that they signed, uh, that he signed with British TV, agreed to provide about 18,000 men on, on, understanding, on the understanding that the British will pay a, a handsome subsidy. But if you look at the treaty provisions, the British only promised to pay a subsidy of 88,000 uh, pounds and then maintain, uh, maintain the troops on the monthly subsidy. But from the Russian point of view, this was not the amount that they expected uh, uh, for the uh, amount of troops that they provided. So uh, uh, Paul, at one point, complains about 
money and says, I'm not doing it for money, but uh, it's a quote from his response. I'm doing it out of the nobility of spirit. Another problem that we see here is that the, the way the preparation, the, the Russians did the preparations also leaves much to be desired. Paul was obsessed with secrecy uh, surrounding this expedition, so he didn't want even his own commanders to know where exactly they were heading. And the commander-in-chief of this expedition on the Russian side is uh, General uh, Ivan Herman von Furzen. And uh, Herman himself, just eight days before sailing, right, um, he is already complaining that he's unaware where exactly his units are, the, he unaware of the amount of the supplies that his units are carrying. Uh, and then later on, uh, once they sail, he's complaining that one of his divisions is sailing with only one month worth of provisions and that his soldiers are wearing such dilapidated uniforms that, as he puts in the quarter, in, in the letter, it is shameful, it would be shameful for them to be seen in foreign lands. And I think ultimately, in, in many respects, this Russo-British fiasco in Holland, um, I think, boils down to the poor preparations, but also lack of good generalship. And I would say on both sides, the British and the Russians. Uh, but since uh, uh, Charles already addressed the British side, let me kind of talk about Herman himself. Herman was an experienced commander, but he, you know, a solid one, but rather unimaginative. And uh, Duke of York actually has a nice description of him as a, as a willing, well-disposed and well-informed man. But he also uh, points out that um, in, in many respects, Herman was always anxious uh, since he was in a shadow of Suvorov, who was beloved by soldiers whose star was shining so, so brightly. And um, Duke of York was right. Uh, Herman's defeat um, and, and ultimately his, his, his capture will overshadow everything he has done in his life. Okay, well, thanks for that, Alex. Let's uh, now move on to a st completely strategically irrelevant theatre. This is why we've saved Egypt until last, because it's got nothing to do with what's actually really mattering uh, in this three months. But there is plenty of drama, actually, in uh, uh, on the Lower Nile in, in, in this three months. Uh, we're all hoping Charles McKay, uh, who'll be talking us through it, will be turning his PhD on Andros Juno into a book. Juno is mentioned briefly here as Charles talks us through more fighting, more bloodshed, another triumph for Bonaparte as the Ottomans look to establish a bridgehead near the mouth of the Nile. Well, uh, the French were well apprised uh, of uh, what was about to hit them, thanks to British newspapers and sailors and merchants and things. So they knew that there was a Turkish uh, uh, fleet, a Turkish force uh, amassing um, uh, on roads. Uh, and this was the other you know, prong of the Turkish attack that Napoleon anticipated, the first one through the land, which he dispensed with the Battle of Mount Tabor. And then the second one uh, he knew was imminent. So, you know, he put the army in in uh, in a fit of repair, if you will. And uh, the the Turks do, in fact, land uh, near Damietta and uh, their commander there, uh, Mustafa Pasha, had had a lot of experience uh, fighting the Russians and immediately sought to dig in 
uh, with his force. And he, uh, with his landing site, he, he had two lines or was trying to conduct two lines of, of, of entrenchments. His problem was there was no route, there was no line of retreat for that yeah. Turkish yeah. army in case something should go wrong. But it's interesting that he was following the, the sort of Ottoman military orthodoxy in digging in and establishing that beachhead. And- Correct. And, and you know, give him some safety, you know, organize his force. And so Bonaparte puts together about 10,000 men. He's outnumbered almost two to one. Uh, but as soon as he gets to what's about to going to be the battlefield of, of Abakir Bay, he immediately sees that the Turkish defenses, the first line, the, the front, the closest line to the French is not yet complete. And there is no line of retreat uh, for the Turkish military. And so, you know, right away, it's just go all uh, frontal assault right away. And the French carry that first line at the Battle of Abakir, which happens on 25 July 1799. They carry that first line relatively quickly. Uh, however, the second line uh, proved to be a, a little bit of a tougher nut to crack. Uh, a, a, and really what um, blows it open, literally, uh, was a fantastic cavalry charge by none other than Joaquin Mira, who launches oh, right. a cavalry at a vulnerable spot. The cavalry charge was remarkably successful carries the entrenchments, in fact, gets into the headquarters of uh, Mustafa Pasha. They fight a personal hand-to-hand combat. Uh, and Mustafa Pasha actually shot Murat in the jaw, which required uh, a, a surgical procedure. Uh, and Murat personally captured uh, Mustafa Pasha in this combat. Yeah, this is, again, like it's out of a movie yet again. Again, out of a movie, and uh, you know, I'm sure that the theme of luck for Bonaparte has come up uh, more than one time already, and it will again and again and again. And uh, the rout of the Ottoman army after this is is complete. Now, the rump of the forest retired. There's a castle there at Abakir. Uh, the French quickly lay a siege, but it, it the, the the remaining defenders. Uh, uh, surrender within days. That entire force of eighteen or twenty thousand Ottomans is either destroyed or captured. Thousands wow. of men died trying to swim two miles to the British fleet anchored offshore. Oh no, I heard about that. Yeah, when I, I, I and, and I actually remember just feeling really upset about that at the time just because it's just such a miserable way to die um you know the the situation was so desperate that they felt they had to give it a go and then they're all just drowning it's so grim why am i doing this podcast i hate this stuff (laughs) (laughs) well you made it through the revolution (laughs) yeah that's true that was pretty bad too so so uh, mustafa pasha then um yeah, he 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 certainly pays the price, as as do his men. Um, but but it, it is an astonishing, uh, yeah, turnaround again, you know. Um, and and it, it does it actually potentially uh, in the wake of this battle make the situation? I mean, it's clearly improved for Napoleon Bonaparte after after had the Battle of Mount Tabor in the in the last episode, and then and then now this this thumping victory again. Um, you know, maybe um, the situation from the Ottoman point of view, they might be a bit put off by all this. So perhaps there's something to be... Maybe the, the French situation is improving 
in uh, in in uh, Egypt after this. Yeah, I think that's fair to say, at least as far as it goes, uh, in that there's not going to be another Ottoman wave happening in the following month or, or perhaps even the month after that. But, you know, I think Bonaparte kind of started to look around and realize, okay, there's a reality here. You know, there is no more French fleet. After the Battle of the Nile, uh, there's no French fleet. And if they're having guns intercepted moving from Egypt to Acre, or if Napoleon's correspondence with his brother is getting intercepted by the British, the likelihood that the French government, especially with all that's going on at home, is going to send him uh, um, reinforcements of any value is pretty remote. And, and even so, what if they did? Where are they going to go? at that point yeah so okay it's almost as if though surely he could have realized that immediately after the battle of the null it's taken a bit of a, a bit of time for it to sink in that that strategic reality well uh, you know bonaparte ever the opportunist right let's let's turn a let's turn a, a setback into an opportunity and he certainly has a public relations uh win in the holy land not a real one but certainly a public relations win and, you know, vaporizing the enemy force that came to Egypt. I, I mean, there's no one left. There's no threat left. Every single one of those soldiers got captured or, or perished. So what more do you want a military commander to do at that point? Right. I, I, you know, mission accomplished. That's true. I suppose so. So the French flags raised in Cairo and, and, and he can say that's that. Yeah. Mission, mission accomplished. Exactly. Um, so, then the, the, the suggestion that, um, or the question about intent in his mind when he makes this decision to depart um, at the end of August, and he's then, you know, I suppose in the final month of this quarter uh, at sea, trying to keep his fingers crossed and dodging the British. Um, uh, <laughs> what what is his intention uh, as he because he you know. He, We'd seen in 1796 in Milan, he was quite capable of, um, you know, doing much more than a straightforward general ought to be doing. Uh, definitely uh, a statesman in the making there, um, or a meddler in the making anyway. So, what what would you say um, was he? Th how, how ambitious was he being? Well, I, I mean, I think you've obviously hit the nail on the head. Uh, he's not a typical French general. You know, Clébert doesn't go home. Manu doesn't go home. They 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 you know, they do what they're ordered to do, which is to defend Egypt against the, you know, the eventual uh, attacks from the British that are coming. Not so Napoleon. Napoleon looks around and says, listen, there's nothing more for me to do here. Uh, but things are such back in France that, you know, I can make some hay. I piled up some political capital. I've got some wins. You know, everybody's going gaga for the, for, for Egyptian styling and costumes and fashion. And I, I need to go home. And that's exactly what he does. <laughs> it's actually what a really impressive thing to be doing um, in terms of being a, a big move um, by a, a player that he's clearly um, wanting to be. What about just let's just hear a little bit about the exact circumstances of the the great sneaking off. <laughs> so uh, I, I think it's probably fair to say uh, this was done uh, under the cover of darkness. Uh, Napoleon gathered his closest associates, his brother-in-law, Murat. Uh, he's got Lon there with him, Berthier, of course, uh, General Bonn, uh, and several others. And he makes a plan to sail off. Uh, Clay Bear is going to be the, the new commander 
uh, he, in a sense, sends Claybear a note and says, okay, I've left. So you're the new commander and, you know, good luck. Cheerio. And uh, off Napoleon Bonaparte scoots uh, to try his luck uh, to get into France. And how do you think Claybear would have felt on receiving that note? Well, the army was not happy, and and Claybert was not happy anyway. And um, I, I don't, I'm not sure if your your uh, international uh, listeners uh, will be familiar with the Winnie of the Pooh character Eeyore, but uh, Claybert had a bit of a personality like Eeyore. So this was not well received uh, uh, by Claybert. Uh, nevertheless, Claybert in 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 future months does a great job. So we needn't uh, worry too much about him. But the army and Claybert uh, did. There were hard feelings uh, about this. This was not popular. I bet. I'm trying not to laugh, but <laughs> I don't know. It's just such an outrageous thing to do. Anyway, there we go. Great. <laughs> <laughs> He's done a lot of outrageous things, hasn't he? Well, good luck to Eeyore um, for the future months, and we'll have to see whether how Clabert does um, in uh, in clinging on there for the French forces in Egypt. And th- thank you to Charles for talking us through that. Maybe maybe that's where we start this actually with with a question mark about with Bonaparte's departure. What does that mean for the French um, situation in Egypt now? It's been a full year since the Battle of the Nile. So they've been a bit stuck for for twelve months, but they're they're still there for now. And actually, they've won another big victory against the Ottomans. So they've, at the very least, bought themselves a little bit of time. Well, uh, if we look at the correspondence between Bonaparte and Claver, you we will see that both of them understand that the Egyptian campaign didn't unfold the way they envisioned it. Uh, the instructions that Napoleon uh, Bonaparte at this time, uh, the instructions that he left to Kleber actually specify that uh, Kleber should negotiate the French evacuation with the Ottomans if there were no reinforcements coming by the spring of 1800. Uh, 1800. So Bonaparte himself understands that this expedition will not be uh, long-term successful. Um, in fact, it, 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 interestingly, he puts two provisions in, in, in terms of start of negotiations. If there were no reinforcements coming by spring, and if the French losses to the raging plague epidemic continue to uh, exceed 1,500 uh, people uh, per, per, per specific period. And so uh, rather than wait, Kleber, who's been arguing for evacuation all along, Kleber already in mid-September actually invites the Ottoman side to engage in negotiations because he understands the longer he waits, the more challenging it will be for the French to get out. So I think uh, there are few people in the up, high ups in, in, in French army who have, who have, are under any illusion of what the Egyptian campaign has become. Fair enough. A, a real truth bomb. Uh, well, it's just the way it is. The reality staring the French in the face in Egypt. Then, okay. Thanks for that. Uh, thanks for that, Alex. Uh, well, Charles, did you want to say anything on that? Um, 
in all honesty, Turkish armies weren't very good. Um, they they were composed in large part um, of feudal cavalry who were very undisciplined and um, weren't really capable of taking on the French. Um, of Janissaries who were regular infantry, um, but by this time very very poor quality, uh, largely untrained, uh, very unwilling to to leave their their comfortable haunts, and and finally. Um, masses and masses of um, Serb and Albanian, uh, Macedonian um, irregulars were basically mercenaries. Um, and, and this motley horde, um, frankly, is pretty easy for European armies to deal with and it gets dealt with. The problem is, of course, that, that there are generally you know, always more Turks. Um, you know, there are a lot of Turks. Yeah, the, 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 the Turkish Empire is very difficult to fight. So really, this victory is neither here nor there. Um, and and the, the French can't feel any more secure. All they've got is a breathing space. And, and you know, Napoleon basically realises um, you know, that the game is up, that he's not going to find fame and fortune um, in Egypt. And when he discovers that the, the situation in France, um, let's be kind to him, that the situation in France requires his presence, um, of course, he's going, you know, going to lose to not jump ship, but jump on, jump on a ship and, and, and sail off into, into the blue. Frankly, given Napoleon's inclination to follow his star, um, at every opportunity, um, I don't think that that's very surprising. Yeah, but Charles, you'd have done the same thing, though, wouldn't you, if you were in Bonaparte's position? Surely that was uh, something you'd have done? Alex, I am a gentleman. <laughs> Bonaparte wasn't. Oh, so you'd have gone down with the ship. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I'm chuckling here. Uh, well, uh, that uh, yes, let, let's leave it at that. All right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Well, I, okay. Well, I tell you what. Let, we'll, 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 we won't go into too much too much there about the uh, the, the the logic of that that situation uh, and that decision. But I tell you what, just to look at things from the Ottoman point of view, seeing as you were talking about those a bit there, Charles. Surely, um, this is Selim the Third, right? At this stage. Who um, who might have one or two good ideas about military reform? If the, okay, if the Ottoman forces aren't very good, maybe they need to uh, shake things up a little bit. I'm sure this is something we'll be returning to a little bit later on in the Napoleonic Quarterly. Well, certainly the, the Sultan um, Selim the Third was was very very anxious to push reform. Um, he'd already effected a considerable reform to the Ottoman navy. Um, He'd started to build a, a European-style army, um, but the trouble was he was he was operating in a very very conservative environment, um, and he was struggling against very powerful vested interests, um, not least the Janissaries. Um, the Janissaries of you know their famed soldiers of the, the the 15th and 16th century and so forth they're 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 this regular army which 
bring the bring the Ottomans enormous gains. Um, you know, they march all the way into Hungary and take over the whole of the Balkans and so forth. Um, however, with the passage of the years, the Janissaries have become more and more undisciplined, um, less and less interested in engaging in military training. Many of them spent all of their time um, basically working as artisans, um, leather workers or, or cloth workers or metal workers. Um, and they they didn't like anything which threatened their their position in society, which threatened their privileges and and looked likely to put them in the line of fire, really. Um, and they were a very powerful, powerful interest group. Um, there's also, I mean, the Ottoman court being what it is, there's, there, there's always rivals for the throne. And um, later on down the line, you know, we'll, we'll see all of this coming together. Um, but anyway, to return to Selim, yes, he's a reformer, but he's a reformer whose wings are very, very definitely clipped and whose ability to, to make any real change is pretty limited. Sounds like he's got his work cut out. Yeah. If I can uh, chime in for a second, uh, I do want point, uh, to also point out that uh, for all the challenges that the Ottoman army is facing, the Ottoman navy is actually doing not too shabby uh, at this time. Uh, the uh, and, and the result of the uh, unprecedented collaboration between the Russians and the Ottoman navies, plus the Ottoman and British treaties of, uh, of alliance, we see Ottoman navy reclaiming positions in the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, well, let's not forget that the uh, Ottomans were able to retake Ionian islands uh, and, and they were able to uh, re rebuild their navy by by uh, by the fall of 1799. Uh, so and, and ensure that even after the defeat of the Anglo Ottoman fleet or the landing expedition in 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 the summer of 1799, that defeat didn't alter the outcome of the of the war. Yeah, I'd certainly agree about about the Ottoman fleet, but. I mean, there's a couple of points to make there. I mean, first of all, Selim set about reforming the fleet well before the time that he set about reforming the army. There's simply more time to get things going. And secondly, when he's reforming the fleet, he's not up against ma the massive vested interests. Um, I, I don't know very much about the Ottoman Navy, but I don't think it, it carried that much clout. And certainly not much as not not as much clout as the Janissaries. So consequently, he's simply able to do more and get further. And in a sense, it's a real shame that he wasn't able to do more with the, with the army. Yeah, I agree. Time then to consider the situation at the end of this three months on September the 30th, 1799. What would um, people in the capitals of Europe have been talking uh, about? Let's let's put Paris to one side for now and look at, look at the Allied side and the question of whether the Austrian and Russian and British alliance, I suppose, would people have been realising by the end of September 
that it looked like the shelf life of this particular coalition was starting to look quite short. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think that um, anybody who had any knowledge of the wider strategic situation um, would have been at the very least concerned, if not actually beset by worry. Um, Paul you know, was increasingly turning his back on the coalition. Um, there, there had be begun to be links between him and, and, and Napoleon. Um, or well, no, sorry, uh, between him and French envoys, I think. I can't quite remember. Forgive me. Um, but the point is that, that Paul is certainly drifting apart from the coalition. Um, and that is becoming clear. So that is you know, a very, very worrying development as far as anybody you know, with any information in the Allied camp is concerned. I think, I think that's a uh, very interesting point that you're making, Charles. And um, in terms of what the people were thinking, um, I cannot but marvel if, if most people of Catholic uh, background were more preoccupied maybe with the, uh, with the fact that uh, on August 29, 1799, Pope Pius VI passed away, uh, creating a vacuum uh, at, at the helm of the Catholic Church. We, we know it, it will take a, you know, the, the papal elections take time. Uh, and and uh, in this particular uh, case, uh, Pius VI reigned for, what, over two decades. So he had a large imprint on, on the Catholic world. And, and his passing does create a void. And it's unclear who will fill that void in this turbulent moment. So I think part of me thinks that, in many people's mind, that would have been uh, one of the top um, issues. Um, as, as for the coalition, I don't know whether whether the fissures that we are aware of, uh, internal fissures, uh, were as public uh, at the time. Because from a public's point of view, the, the coalition is doing remarkably well. They have defeated the French in a series of battles, yes. There's a setback at Zurich, but it seems that the that the coalition should do better against France than ever before. And in the fact that there is this internal political ramblings inside France, and we we already discussed the rising Jacobin threat, this the 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 seeming political shenanigans of of CS and others, that France is not as united as before. So maybe this is a moment when France will be. Um, taught a lesson. Well, well, well. Okay, that's really good then. A good point to leave uh, leave things hanging. We'll see how that develops in the next uh, episode. Uh, but um, also then the question of whether French politics, and if we look at things from the, the French perspective, this has been three months, as we've talked about, where temperatures have risen and things are bubbling up. People wringing their hands that Joubert's death and there's a lot there's a lot going on here um so and, and it's starting to feel very familiar um and a little bit like we've seen this before in the 1790s in French domestic politics so where where have things got to in Paris uh, by the end of September and what would people have been wondering about um in terms of where French politics is heading in the final three months of the year 
the last week of September would be such a roller coaster of a ride for, for anyone in France. Because at the beginning, in the first two weeks of September, it seems like a dark and gloomy. Uh, it seems that French are losing. And then starting on September 19, um, 1920, over the period of about two weeks, almost miraculously, everything has will, will change, right? Brune will repulse the Anglo-Russian army in Holland. Massena will win that great victory over Korsakov uh, at Zurich. Then we have the intelligence of Suvorov, instead of invading France, heading across the Alps, and that the news of what will transpire in the mountains will trickle in, and all of that, uh, all the news is good. On top of it, uh, on October 3rd, if I'm not mistaken, the French newspapers will start already publicizing Bonaparte's yet another victory in Egypt. Uh, and, and so together, I think, in the span of 10, uh, 10 days, last 10 days of September, your mood as a, as, as a Frenchman could have shifted from that of desperation, apathy, or maybe depression to that of euphoria, realizing that France will not be invaded and that there is a, a, a glimmer of hope. So I think that's a very important moment uh, in, 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 this, in this time. So shifting sands here, Charles. How about a last word from you to finish the episode? Perhaps we should just turn to Britain. We've said very little about Britain in this episode. Um, and, I, and I certainly don't believe in being Anglo-centric. Um, but problems are mounting up in Britain. Um, the period 1799-1800-1801, it's time of great economic crisis. Um, Britain was was in a constant state of crisis, if you like, because of the impact of the Industrial Revolution. Um, the Industrial Revolution is having a massive impact on people like um, handloom weavers, for example. Um, the, the Industrial Revolution creates opportunities for some um, and, and misery for others. Um, so people like handloom weavers um, are already discontented because of the way their, li their livelihood is being undercut um, by the invention of new spinning machinery and uh, weaving machinery. When, in addition to this, you have a situation in which bread, bread prices you know, rise enormously, um, you're going to get um, social unrest. And, and that increasingly is going to become a feature in British thinking, or rather, the, if you like, the fear of social unrest is increasingly going to become a factor in, in Britain's thinking um over the next few months well that is yet another factor to add into the turbulence that we're seeing at the end of this three months it's three months i have to say in which at the end of this you know sometimes we're teeing things up for what comes next and it seems like it's all heading in one particular direction it doesn't feel like that right now going into october 1799 but let's see how things pan out in what i can guarantee will prove to be the dramatic conclusion of season four of the napoleonic quarterly that's coming up in episode 32 next time for now thank you to david hollins to phil ball to charles mckay for their segment contributions thanks to ben eckersley for the music 
music. Thanks to Josh Proven for the headline developments and for, to Bernie Campbell for his visualisation of them. And an enormous thank you to our frigate lieutenant tier patrons, Mike Davis, Nicholas Basham and Asher Jacobs. Welcome aboard to you all. At the end of this quarter, there are, I believe, 5,739 days to go until the end of Waterloo. Check it if you like. But uh, you can take my word for it. Up to you. And in episode 32, we'll be hearing from all sorts. But here's Phil Ball describing how things oh continue to go quite badly for the British and the Russians in the Batavian Republic. Thank you. Bye for now. We can't smash through militarily. The French can't get us in this position. It's fairly impregnable. But we haven't got any food, so we can't hold it that long. This is now an increasingly unviable position. 